Lord Jesus, you are so precious to us. Father, would you now confirm in us more love for your son? And Lord, as you do this, would you cause us to have more sweetness, more life, more rest and peace in your son, Jesus? God, be now with us. In his name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. You may be seated. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder, and I serve on staff here as our discipleship minister. Today, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 8, so I invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your device and find yourself in Matthew chapter 8 with me. As you're turning there, I want you to reflect on something with me. What is the greatest display of power in our world today? What's our greatest, what's the greatest display of power in our world today? I imagine that how you answer that might depend on what you've experienced or what you enjoy in life. Maybe the first thought is a supercharged engine in a sports car. Or maybe you're more of a working ranching type and you think about a really strong truck with great towing capacity. Or maybe you're more theoretical and you think about the potential power that's contained by things like dams. And you think of how much power can be unleashed with water flowing in a destructive way. Or maybe you think of things like government and political powers, right? That's a great display of power. Or maybe there's some of you that are like really, really analytical and you're like, well, if we're gonna get real accurate here, we really need to measure power based on how big the thing is. And so we're, we're talking about the horned dung beetle. That's the most powerful thing pound for pound in the world. And then I'm well aware that there's a lot of scientific brains in the room, right? There's a lot of engineers here who work for the labs. And so you guys are sitting here going, you don't know what I do for work. I know power. You're a bl- I can't even talk to you about the stuff that I know that's powerful, right? And then there's some real, I'll be kind to you, real nerdy types who are like, well, technically it's a gamma ray burst happening in our solar system. Either way, as we consider powerful things in the universe, the one common thread is that in comparison, we have no power whatsoever. As we think about these things, we find ourselves to be quite puny, don't we? So what's the answer to that question? What is the greatest display of power in our universe? I'd suggest, and I think we even saw this in the Bible when we had our scripture read from Job 38. The greatest display of power is the one who has authority over all of these things we've described. The one that makes the horned dung beetle so strong pound for pound that causes, created physics and science to work so that nuclear reactions can occur. The one who made water and weight and mass and gravity. That's where real power is, the one who has authority over all of these things. Our passage this morning in Matthew 8, is all about Jesus' authority, his power. This has actually been a theme, though, that Matthew's been pulling a thread on over and over and over again these past few chapters. We saw Jesus' authority in his teaching ministry. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7? The crowds marveled at his authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus' authority displayed over and over and over again. Here's a little helpful device that'll help you remember all the ways we see Jesus' authority in Matthew 8 and 9. These words all start with the letter D. We see it, he has authority over disease. Last week he healed lepers, he healed fever, 
right? Well, later we'll see that he heals a paralyzed man. Jesus has authority over demons. This is what we'll see next week when he heals two demon-possessed men. Jesus has authority over deliverance. Later in Matthew 9, he'll say that he has authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 9, we'll also see he has authority over death when he raises a young woman from the dead. And today we'll see the other D, he has authority over the waves. You could also say, <laughs> and all, the other D you could use is disasters, right? natural disasters, right? Yeah, I've been holding that one for years, guys, yeah. <laughs> Jesus has authority over seemingly unconquerable forces. And he displays his authority, not just to show that he's got power for authority's sake, he displays his authority for the sake of revelation so that you and I and his disciples would see who he is. Authority is directly related to identity and identity is directly related to discipleship. His authority shows us who he is and who he is demands that we come and follow him. We actually even see this in the whole structure of Matthew 8 and 9. In these two chapters, Matthew gives us nine miracles of Jesus. He groups those nine into three groups of three. I'm trying to put this, to paint this together with my hands if you can watch. Three groups of three. And in between those three groups of three, we have two stories about discipleship. So the thread, if you want to tie the theme of all of Matthew 8 and 9, it's that Jesus reveals who he is and demands that we come and follow him. Authority is directly linked to our discipleship. So let's consider this morning two points from our passage. We'll consider our first point, the cost of following, the cost of following. I'm gonna begin reading in Matthew chapter eight and verse 18. We'll read to 22 and we'll consider this point. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Our passage begins in verse 18 with Jesus being swallowed by a crowd and he gives orders that it's time to get over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You may remember that Jesus in this portion of Matthew is doing his ministry in Capernaum, which is a city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And so it makes sense that as these fishermen who have experience in boats would be crowded around on the edge of the sea, he'd say, let's get some space, let's go. And so perhaps these directives were stated loudly by Jesus so that the crowd could hear. Or maybe it was just obvious watching everybody prepare these boats. Either way, the movement that Jesus and his disciples were about to make prompts two individuals to come forward and ask to stay with Jesus and be his disciples. In these two would-be disciples, we see two failures of discipleship. We see one is too quick to come to Jesus. And we see that the other is drawn to other priorities first. You could say we see over-eagerness and under-eagerness. To the first, Jesus says that following is 
going to be too difficult for you. And to the other, he says that your reasons for holding back following me aren't good enough. So let's consider first the scribe. We see him in verse 19. He's our overzealous, overconfident follower. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And you would think Jesus would be really excited about this new prospect. He's a scribe that wants to follow Jesus. In our world today, this is like a four-star recruit that jumped into the transfer portal and is looking for a new landing spot for playing time. For those of you that don't follow college sports and don't know anything that I just said, uh, this guy looks like he'd be a really big addition to the disciples. He's been trained in God's word. He's a scribe. He's religious. But Jesus isn't jumping for joy at this new follower. Jesus sees this man's self-assurance, his confidence as a concerning thing because this man hasn't counted the cost of what it will mean to follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't going to be about glitz and glam. It's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. Jesus responds by telling him, animals are gonna have better places to rest than you will if you follow me. Have you thought about that? Are you sure you really wanna do this? Jesus puts it out for him. It's interesting that Jesus deters someone that wants to follow him. That should probably surprise us some, but it's just because of how important it is that followers of Jesus count the cost. In Luke 14, Jesus says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king going out to war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able to meet him who's coming out against him in battle? We need to count the cost. True discipleship requires that we not be hasty to respond. We have to consider the danger, the loss, the hardship that will come from us or come to us if we take up our cross and follow him. But even as we consider those losses, Jesus still wants followers who count the cost and then happily and joyfully forsake every loss because he's worth it. We follow him not, we don't follow him hastily, but we also follow him joyfully. There's a tension here. We see this tension played out really well in a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. In that chapter, Jesus tells us about a man who found a treasure of unimaginable value in a field. And that man left the field and counts the cost of what it takes to get the field and starts selling everything he has so that he can get enough money pooled together to go buy the field and get the unimaginably valuable treasure. He knew it would cost him everything, but he knew that it was worth it. This is a picture of what disciples of Jesus are like. We also see this in Paul in Philippians 3. Paul says this about his own experience following Christ. I count everything as loss because of what? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, the sake of Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus does not want overzealous 
or over-eager followers. He wants sober-minded, wise followers that know the sacrifice of following him and are still sold out. I've heard it said earlier, to, actually just earlier today, I heard this quote on an unlikely source. It wasn't even about this passage, but I thought, wow, what a great quote. Uh, somebody said, counting the cost doesn't mean that we predict the future. It means that you budget for what could happen. You're trying to think of what could happen if I follow Jesus. And if you think like that at the beginning of your discipleship on the path of following Jesus, you're not gonna be cut off, caught off guard when it's time for you to crush an idol that's been your comfort for years. You'll just know that's, that's what you've required and it's time. You won't be caught off guard when you need to love somebody so the much that it hurts you at your own expense because that's what Jesus calls his disciples to. You won't be caught off guard when it's time for you to initiate a conversation with a neighbor about Jesus and you're a little nervous about what they'll think about you. Or you're not caught off guard when you feel called to go to tell the gospel to people who've never heard it and you leave the comforts of your home country. We must count the cost before we follow. Let's consider that other would-be disciple now. We see him in verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, that's an interesting, curious phrase, isn't it? Another of the disciples. If you pause and think, is this one of the 12? Or who's Matthew talking about when he says disciples? It seems best to understand that Matthew's using the term disciple in a non-technical way. He's not describing the 12 that have been set apart and called by Jesus. Instead, he's using this term to describe someone who's in the crowd, that's been hanging around Jesus, listening to his teachings. But what this means is that discipleship must be more than just hanging out in the crowd. Discipleship is so much more than just being a curious listener to Jesus' teaching. It's so much more than that. So Jesus is going to redefine what discipleship is in, this man's, in the answer to this man's request. And what we'll see is that discipleship is about forsaking all other priorities so that our allegiance would be totally and completely to Jesus. Discipleship's about forsaking all other priorities so that our allegiance would be only to Jesus. So this man in the crowd comes forward and says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. This would-be disciple wants to follow Jesus, it seems, but he also has another priority that's holding him back, that's preventing him from following now. So he asks, can I have my service deferred to a later date when it's more convenient? There's a lot of discussion related to what exactly this man's asking for. You know, has this man's father just passed away recently? And he's saying, give me a couple days to go be a part of these funeral proceedings and help me be with my family in the immediate aftermath of this loss? Or is this man's father aging and he knows it's coming, but it hasn't quite yet happened. And he's saying, give me an indefinite amount of time. I'd like to just kind of be freed up to have my family obligations and not be a bad son in following you. Either way, regardless of which position you take, we have to reckon with Jesus's words here. Jesus says, you will follow me. You'll leave behind the priority and the obligation you may feel to your family and come after me. 
He'll prioritize me. You won't worry about burying the physically dead. You'll let the spiritually dead do that. But instead, you'll come. Jesus' words are certainly countercultural. And they may even feel harsh or insensitive. I think the difference, though, from us saying that to somebody and Jesus saying that is that Jesus knows the heart of man. It may sound harsh to us, but Jesus is actually addressing the real issue in this man's life. Here's maybe what this looks like in our lives today. I'm sure you've had it happen where you got invited to something, you went and looked at your calendar and realized, oh no, I can't go. We have another commitment that very same night and you're disappointed and you have to tell somebody, I'm sorry, we can't come, we've got another commitment. Then I'm sure it's also happened that you've been inviting to something and you thought, I do not wanna go to that. How can we get out of this? Uh, oh, we got another commitment. We found another commitment. There's something else we can be committed to that prevents us from going. I think this man is more like that second option. He hears the call to come after Jesus and is going, I don't know, that feels really risky. I've got some other things that really matter to me a lot and I don't wanna give them up. He's looking for a way out. He's looking to keep his priorities. And that really is the issue, isn't it? The problem is, do we prioritize following this king or do we prioritize something else? This passage certainly reminds us that we will have to forsake normal priorities, lifelong priorities, and even culturally rooted priorities to follow after King Jesus. And we'll do it with joy. One commentator said this very succinctly, loyalty to Jesus is more important than loyalty to the cultural norms of your society. And our society certainly has tons of norms that we've adopted. They're not inherently bad, but when they are a competing priority with Jesus, we have to let them go, just like this man was called to. We must reject the rabid individualism that we've been trained by in our culture we have to let it go and start to see the church as a family. That's, that's all the language of the Bible is that we're not an individual. We're a collective when we're brought into the family of God. And we have to reframe our priorities to live like Christ has called us to within this body. We have to reject our cultural value of finding our identity in things like physical beauty or in sexual expression or in your vocation and success. We have to reject the value that good parenting is just making sure your kids succeed in academics or in athletics or in their social life and instead that they would be trained in the fear of the Lord. Church, we must make sure that we are more Christian than we are American. We must forsake the culturally rooted priorities that are given to us and we must follow Jesus instead. So let me ask you, is your allegiance to your family a priority that competes with Jesus? Is it? Whether it's your identity, the time you spend with your family, or even just living up to the expectations of your family, does that compete with you obeying the Lord? We must not forget that Jesus in Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls for complete, sold out obedience and allegiance. 
Our love for Jesus must be so great that it makes our love for our families look like hate. And at the same time, I don't think Jesus is saying that following him must make you a bad family member. Does that make sense? He says you must prioritize him ultimately, but he doesn't say be a terrible son and daughter, forsake your family, leave your kids. Christians do the opposite. They honor their father and mother. They're quick to defer their desires and serve within their families. Christians should be the ones that want the true good for other family members, even sharing the gospel with them. I just say a quick word that if, you're, if you have siblings, if you're like under 18 and living in the home, one of your duties as following the Lord, if you're trusting in Jesus, should be to help your younger siblings know the Lord too. Encourage them to be in the word. If you see them being a bad friend, lovingly help them see their sin. That's what, good, that's what Christians do as family members. But many of us, myself included, have fallen so short here. We've fought in families instead of listened. We've harmed instead of healed. We've been the ones withholding forgiveness and not working to create peace. By God's grace, may we not be the family members that cause more unrest and more difficulty. May we be family members that are helping lead to health and joy in families. So this is what Jesus calls us to, not to be bad family members, but to prioritize him ultimately, even above those nearest to us. So we see these two failures. We don't wanna to be too overzealous. I'll do whatever you want, Jesus. We don't wanna be underzealous. Ah, I don't know, kinda of got some other things I'm working on. Jesus wants us to follow him with all of us and all of our beings. So don't hold back. Maybe that's you today. You've said, I wanna follow you, Jesus, but I don't want you to dictate some parts of my life. I wanna be able to spend my money how I want to. I wanna be able to spend my time how I want to. I wanna be able to look at what I wanna look at and take in what I wanna take in. But he is Lord over it all. And if you follow him, he is Lord over every aspect of your life. We count the cost and we surrender it all. So follow him. Before we move to our next point, it's worth saying just a couple things about an interesting, unique phrase that we find in this passage. Unique maybe isn't the best word to describe it because we're very familiar with it. It's Jesus' own self-designated term, son of man. We see it in verse 20, when he says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This term is Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. And the gospel of Matthew alone, he calls himself this 30 times. But this is the very first time we've seen it yet in the book. So it is unique. We've yet to hear him call himself this. So what does Jesus mean by this phrase? My guess is that most of you, if I just pulled you, you would give a very logical answer to this. When Jesus says son of man, he means the opposite of son of God. Instead of describing his deity, he's describing his humanity, right? And I get that. I believed that for a really long time. And then somebody showed me a passage in the Old Testament that blows that understanding out of the water and makes me go, oh, Jesus is so, saying so much more. We have to get the so much more that Jesus is saying to see the, the beauty of how Jesus describes himself. So you don't have to turn here. I'll try and do my best to try and paraphrase an Old Testament apocalyptic prophet named Daniel. So in, chapter, in Daniel 7, 
Daniel has a vision. This is where the phrase son of man comes from. Daniel has a vision. And like a lot of prophetic dreams and visions, it can be a little strange. There's four beasts. All of these beasts resemble animals. Um, once again, it's a little interesting, right? So commentators would suggest the best way to understand these beasts and everything in context is that these are various nations that are gonna rise up after Daniel's life, right? And the whole point of the passage is that these beasts rise up and at the very end, after they're all revealed, the Ancient of Days comes. That'd be God sitting on the throne. And the Ancient of Days destroys the beasts, removes their power, and establishes his own kingdom on earth. And you might already think, oh, that's interesting. Jesus has talked a lot about establishing a kingdom on earth. If you're thinking that, you're on the right track. You're seeing how Jesus is connecting this, his ministries in line to the prophetic visions of the Old Testament. So the Ancient of Days sits on the throne, establishes his kingdom. And after that, we're told about a son of man that comes to the Ancient of Days. This son of man comes riding on clouds and he stands before the Ancient of Days, the holy God. The son of man is then given an everlasting dominion over all creation. And then all the nations bow down and worship him. So as we're reading Daniel 7, this son of man isn't just a, no, a normal guy. This is the everlasting eternal king that will reign over God's kingdom. And Jesus says, that's me. His own self-designation is son of man. And if we knew and were steeped in our Old Testament, like the audience in Jesus' day, when we heard it, we would go, are you, are you saying, are you talking about Daniel? And like much of Jesus' ministry, this term is meant to reveal truth and conceal it at the same time. But the beautiful thing of what Jesus does is that he constantly surprises us by how he uses this phrase, son of man. Because when he uses it, he doesn't always talk about an everlasting, eternal king reigning in power. He actually gives us quite the opposite. Matthew 17, 12, the son of man will suffer at their hands. Matthew 20, verse 18, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Matthew 26, verse two, the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Daniel said the son of man would be given an everlasting dominion. And Jesus shows that the son of man would experience excruciating death. The glory of God's plan is that the everlasting dominion of the son of man comes after and comes through the excruciating death that he, that he receives. And why did he die? Well, Jesus tells us that too. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. The all glorious son of man gives his life for the enemies of the kingdom. The eternal king dies a criminal's death so that criminals would be treated like sons and welcome to sit and feast with God at his table. There is not a more beautiful story than this. And the most beautiful thing about this story is that it's completely true. The king of God's kingdom really died for sinners like you and me. He really took our judgment and sin away. And he really offers an open invitation that anybody could come into the kingdom if they would turn from their rebellion, if they would trust the savior king they would repent of their sins. 
There is nothing more beautiful than this. And Jesus, all along his ministry, is giving these subtle hints of who he'd be and what his glory would look like one day. He will die on the cross and come back triumphant. This is the glorious king that we follow, who invites us to follow him without being overzealous or underzealous. He's the one who says, come and follow me. Let's consider our second point this morning. The man worth following. The man worth following. I'm gonna pick up reading again in Matthew chapter eight, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? As we saw at the beginning of our passage, we are on the journey across the Sea of Galilee. There was the plan put in place in verse 18, the interruption of these two would-be disciples. And now it's time, we're on the boat and we're crossing over. And while Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea, a violent storm comes out of nowhere. And I'm not a meteorologist, but I've read in a number of places about the unique geography of Israel. How the Sea of Galilee is way below sea level and there's mountains that tower all around and it's arid, dry air with a giant lake in the middle of it. And all this works out that there's these random pop-up storms that happen all the time in Israel and particularly at the Sea of Galilee. So this shouldn't surprise us that this happens. But yet this storm seems very unique. Here's what I mean. First, the word that Matthew uses to describe it is the word seismos. I don't want to nerd out here on Greek for too long. Hopefully you people uh, hear the word seismos and think, that sounds like seismic, and you'd be right. This is the word that's used to describe earthquakes. It can also be used to describe violent shaking and storms. Either way, Matthew's intending to show us this is an otherworldly type of storm. Its proportions are extreme. We can also see how extreme it is because the response of the disciples. Many of these disciples were fishermen on this very sea. They would be used to these sorts of storms. Yet when this one comes, they're overwhelmed. So that should clue us in. They're used to this stuff. This one's different. They're shaking a little bit more than usual. And so the boat's being overwhelmed and so are the emotions of our disciples. And what's so stunning about this is while they're in this storm of chaos, the son of man is sleeping like a swaddled newborn. He's just out of it. And this is amazing. I think this certainly tells us two things. One, Jesus was human and he had been exhausted. He had one of those sleeps that you don't get woken up from until you're done. And he was laying there, knocked out in a violent storm, wasn't enough to rouse him. And at the same time, I think it also tells us that Jesus's, 
his, his steady state all the time in his ministry was trust in his heavenly father. He was not threatened by the storm because he knew his father would take care of him. So in this moment of desperation, the disciples don't know what else to do. And so they cry out. They cry out with a phrase that would later become a, one of the most used phrase in the early church. Lord, save the cry. Lord, have mercy on us and save us. Jesus wakes up and he responds by rebuking them. He rebukes them. Matthew Henry said, he does not chide them for disturbing them with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their own fear. Jesus jolts awake and he's not worried about the storm. He's concerned about his disciples and their lack of faith. This should tell us that lacking faith is far more dangerous than being in the midst of chaos or even having danger and harm lurking nearby. Lacking faith is a concerning thing. But when we're with Jesus, church, we're never in danger, not ultimately. There is no danger that's strong enough to threaten what Jesus has won for us. We can be growing in age, feeling the steady decline of our bodies, and yet Jesus has promised a new body waiting for us through death. We can be concerned about the rising cost of living and fluctuating retirement accounts, and yet our inheritance is always secure. We can live in a city with high crime and violent crime even, and yet our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And we can be living in an overseas closed country where it's illegal to be a Christian and talk about the Lord, and we are always safe in the arms of Jesus. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. These islands are pretty obscure. They're about 1,200 miles off the coast of Australia. You likely have heard the name Vanuatu. That's one of the cities on these islands. So John Patton was a missionary back to these islands back in the, in the 1860s. And this group, these islands were known for all of the people on them being headhunters and cannibals. This is not the place you'd want to go. And John Patton had been a successful urban minister in, uh, in uh, I think, Scotland. Somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I should have written that one down. Anyway, <clears throat> he's a successful minister, and he's choosing to leave to go to these new islands, and people are deterring him from going. One man in his church said, you cannot go. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. And I love this quote from John Patton. He said, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in age now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There, you're going to be eaten by worms. <laughs> then he said, it makes no difference to me to be eaten by cannibals or by worms. So John Patton goes to these islands, and his life is constantly threatened. And there's a time when he's surrounded by these islanders, and they're arguing with each other about who's going to be the first to hurt him. But the Lord's provision, he's spared from this moment, and later he reflects on it in his biography, and he says, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers. 
without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, and he restrains even the people of the South Sea. We are safe in the arms of Jesus. And so were the disciples, but they were overcome with their fear. So Jesus looks at them and says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And certainly we can understand their fear. The looming threat, so present, the waters splashing over and hitting them. The wind and the water are just chilling their skin as they're watching these waves roll. And certainly fear and faith fight against one another in moments like this. But Jesus' criticism is not that they don't have enough faith to overcome the fear and overpower it. It's rather that they had an ill-informed faith. They had an ill-informed faith. From what these disciples had seen so far in Jesus' ministry, they had enough to know that Jesus was God's Messiah. They could have known from what he said, how he was living, that he was the anointed one. Now, the picture wasn't totally clear to them. They wouldn't maybe have known yet that the Messiah would die for his people and be raised from the dead. But they certainly knew that the Lord protects his anointed and that he wasn't going to die in a boating accident. Their fear in these moments show that they are not trusting that God protects his anointed, that Jesus is the anointed. Their fear shows that they hadn't connected all the dots. They didn't know who Jesus was, and certainly this story is one of the puzzle pieces that comes together to complete this picture for them by the end of the book of Matthew. So Jesus rebukes them for their ill-informed faith. And then we reach the climax of this story. Jesus, rising from rest, rebukes his disciples. Then he looks at the storm hammering down on them, and the wind whipping all around, and the waves bubbling over, and he issues another rebuke. Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea. In Mark's account of this, in Mark 4, we're told that Jesus said, peace, be still. And all of the chaos stops immediately. The wind listened and gave attention. The water droplets held still in the clouds and ceased to fall anymore. And the waves stood at ease in a moment, you can almost imagine just the dead silence that came over that boat. Just everything stopped. This reminds me of when I'm at home and my house feels like a wild storm. My daughters are losing their minds at the most random things. They're whining, they're complaining because that's just who they are right now. Hopefully it's just right now. The TV's on so loud for some reason, and I don't know where, but music is playing. And I just look at both of them and I say, girls, be still. And they just laugh in my face and just keep <laughs> doing everything that they're, that I, that's driving to this chaos. How different is Jesus's authority than ours? With a word, he can bring all of the forces of nature to a screeching halt. Forces that are wild, unpredictable, irregular, and powerful over us. With a simple command, 
He brings chaos to order, danger to safety, and violent shaking to great calm. And the disciples just stare at him. They marvel at him. And of all the things that amazing people can do and have done in our world, none of these things pale in comparison to what just happened in that boat. In the other gospel accounts of this story, we hear that the disciples are not just marveling, they're afraid. They're trembling at what they've just seen. What is this man capable of? It's ironic because it seems like we see the Lord shift the fear from their circumstances and the danger that looms around them to Jesus himself. And perhaps that's the antidote to most of our fears. We're too afraid of what's going on around us or what we perceive could happen. And we're not afraid enough of the Lord and his power. We need to fight fear with fear. We need a fear of God instead of a fear of whatever could happen to us. The disciples feared the one across the boat from them because he was God himself. Jesus spoke a word and everything that was chaotic was brought into order. Does that remind you of any other passage in scripture? When with a word, chaos was brought into order? How about Genesis 1, the beginning of all creation? It was formless and without void, and then God spoke, and chaos is put back in its place, and disorder is made to orderliness. In this moment, we see Jesus doing God's stuff. And we see it repeated in Scripture, too. Psalm 65, verse 7, says that God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas. And now we've got a poor Jewish carpenter sitting in a boat, stilling the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89.9 from our call to worship this morning says that God rules the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, God stills them. And now we've got a man doing the same thing in a boat. I said at the very beginning, these miracles of Jesus aren't done just to be cool party tricks. They're done to reveal to us his identity. Who is this man? Who is he? This is the beauty of how Matthew writes these accounts. The stories are done in vivid detail and they draw us out. You can't read these stories without finding yourself going, who is this? And what's amazing is that as we say that, we find the disciples are asking the very same thing in the boat. There's times as if Matthew has them say what we say and it works totally in tandem in a beautiful way. What sort of man could have such elevated standards of discipleship? Don't come after me hastily. Forsake everything to come after me. What sort of man could calm the storm like this? This is exactly where Matthew wants every one of us to be as we read this account, asking what sort of man is this? So how do you answer that question? Your answer to that is the most important question, answer you can give to any question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good teacher? Is that it? Is he a, some sort of weird cult leader back in the first century? 
Is he a misguided Jewish revolutionary? Or is he the Lord? The one who made each of those water molecules that were held together in each of those thousands of drops falling from the clouds? Is he the one who established the laws of nature that I don't even know how, but wind blows? He's the one who made the water, who made the winds. That's who he is. If you're not answering that, you're missing the point of this. It's not a cool party trick. And if he's this Lord, what do we do? Well, I would suggest that we should take our cues from the winds and the sea. Because even the winds and the sea know their master's voice. And they tremble when he gives them something to do. They obey right away. If he's the Lord, we need to fear him. If he's the Lord, we need to count the cost. If he's Lord, we need to forsake all and follow him and trust him every step of the way. This is his authority. This is his identity. And his call for you is to count the cost and to follow him and come and die. This is who Jesus is and this is what he requires of us. Let's pray. Father, you rule all creation. You alone have power over nature. And we see in your son the very same power. God, may we be humbled. God, we are unable to do anything like Jesus. Father, may we obey him. May we believe in him. May we submit and call him Lord. And Father, may we find more joy in him than anything that the world can offer us. God, be glorified now in Christ's name. Amen.